I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, Paul here. Um, Before we start with Season 3 of History Rage, I'd just like to shout out a big thank you to our three new Patreon subscribers that joined us in June. Those are Stephen Merriman, Tad DePel, and Laura Hardy. Thank you. Because your contribution helps keep this rage going, and I want you to know it's appreciated. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about giving members of the historical community a safe space to rip apart history and get angry with the shreds. I'm public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host, good friend, and fellow historian, Kyle Glover. Hello. And we're back. We're back with Series 3. Who'd have thought that? I know. Three seasons, which means we've got one more season than the young ones. And wow. I don't want to terrify you and our other listener, um, but Season 2 of The Young Ones finished five years before I was born. That's depressing. Yeah, I know. But anyway... But we digress. Yes. Yes. Well, dear listener, thank you very much for coming back to us. And we are kicking off this week with a rage that's very close to my heart and one that's been on our target list Mm. since we started History Rage. Now, this is a rage that produced some strong language and some strong emotion. And when we've gone back to it over the editing, we've decided to stick with this. So listener discretion is advised. Strong language will follow. Ladies and gentlemen, to kick this series off, We're welcoming historian, author, broadcaster, co-founder of the podcast History Hack, Alex Churchill, and historian and tutor, Andy Locke. And together, they are just two of the trustees of the Great War Group charity. Guys, welcome to History Rage. Hello. Hello. Now, Andy, we've connected on Twitter and I followed your epic marathon in World War One kit. And seriously, well done. Well done for that. That looked hard. And, yes. <laughs> and Alex, I've pretty much learned everything I know about war factories from you and the Yesterday Channel. Excellent. Um, but for our other listener, please tell us a bit about yourselves and the project that is the Great War Group. 
Oh, can I just say though that my overriding memory of Lockie's marathon run was when he came over the front, the finishing line live on BBC and went for his watch and he kind of staggered and I thought he was going to hurl all up the advertising boardings live on BBC. <laughs> and I was like, do it, do it, do it. I was, I was about to hurl my Apple watch into uh, House Garden. I just feel like it would have <laughs> been a crowning glory if we'd have puked all over the Santander boarding, but you didn't. No, I'd, I, have, I, I'd have doubled my donation for that. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, I, what I did, I mean, after I'd sort of had an argument with my watch and worked out that it wasn't going to play ball, um, I, I was then fumbling for one of the hip flasks in one of my pouches, one of the, one of the bonuses of having loads of pouches across your chest with First World War soldiers kit is you can put stuff in. It's mostly Haribo, to be I was fair. I going to say, but... isn't it mostly hairy gummy bears? Haribo? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, mostly Haribo. I had a little tub of Vaseline. In one of them as well, that it was liberally was applied to the to the nipples as I went, and um, and and there was a little hip flask that was almost exactly the same size and shape as a German egg grenade from the First World War. It was really awkward when that dropped out, and just as I was setting off, uh, it'd be at Black brilliant Eight, so... if you'd have been rugby tackled <laughs> on the floor by like SO15 yeah. or whatever. No, the steward <laughs> didn't bat an eyelid. He's like, I think you dropped your grenade, mate. I'm like, oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> I picked it up and off I go. Yeah, awesome. I watched, I watched you run that marathon on telly. It was great. So tell us, tell us, as we asked, a bit about the Great War Group charity and what it's about. Uh, so we founded it, didn't we, Lockie? The six of us to give people a fun space to get involved in the First World War and sort of, I, do you know what? I think we kind of dovetail quite nicely with the independent company. If you're keeping tracks with that and James Holland and Al Murray and that, it's kind of a similar thing in that it's a group of people that kind of want to enjoy their interest in military history whilst doing the reverence thing as well. And it's inclusive and we're not definitely at the Great War Group. I mean, within like five minutes, we had gay members, straight members, trans members, all different ethnicities and stuff. And we definitely wanted it to be like anyone with an interest in military history could rock up and get involved. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of different people, but but all with quite a similar mindset. Everyone's keen to share. There's people who are you know qualified to the umpteenth degree, and also people who are brand new to it as well. And everyone's sharing the knowledge as well, and also just the the love for that piece of history. And and I think doing it right uh, as yeah. well. Get, get, get. I was going to say our mantra, isn't it? Is there's no such thing as a stupid question. If you're just at the beginning and you're asking a question, that you don't need to be mocked for it. No, and that is a welcome sentiment. That really is. Well, if I can start off then by uh, by by asking that obvious, stupid question that uh, that starts and the one really that history rage is all about. So, Alex, Andy, in your own time, with as much emotion as you uh, you feel it musters, can you please tell our listeners the one thing that you really wish people would just stop believing? Ugh, lions led by donkeys can just fuck off. It is the laziest, most boring trope about the war and also just doesn't get it at all. You, you, you've got to uh, how your starting point from the, the, the winners were somehow incredibly stupid and just callously sent men off to die. Oh, come on. No. But also, as well, the idea that you would have in your chosen profession got to director level as a complete moron um, <laughs> who didn't know what they were doing and survived five years in the nastiest environment for your profession going ever seen in fact in the history of the world and not been fired somewhere along the way and still be rubbish at your job as well wow <laughs> yeah when you put it like that yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's absolutely blindingly obvious. I would say the one of the big things, big themes behind the First World War, the Great War for me, if there is, if there was two things in school I really didn't like, it was history and bloody poetry. Hmm. And the First World War just combines the two. You know, what? What? what is this poetry bollocks? And is it? Is it anywhere close to actually, you know, the truth? No, this can do one as well, can't it, Lockie? This is a few bored, flowery guys sitting there. I mean, and to be fair to them, they're writing down their experience and it's their way of projecting their experience. And that's fair enough and that. But how we went from a few of them writing miserable poems about the war to this apparently encompassing how everyone in the war felt about the war and articulated it. And the only thing worth studying, if you're a school kid, blows my fucking mind. It really does. Well, it's, it's, it's disingenuous as well, because Siegfried assumes a psychopath on the uh, song. He's, you he's the worst for me as well. <laughs> you, I look at his face and I do that Clint Eastwood thing from Gran Torino. Like, <laughs> you don't get a military cross, but I mean, he, he practically scuppered his battalion by wanting to drag men off and kill Germans off on his own or take a, take a handful with him. No, he's a lunatic. So writing this wistful, wordy nonsense about how terrible it all is, he's a willing participant in some I've of the worst more respect than about you Lockie for people like Rupert Brooke and Kipling who got paid to do the patriotic nonsense <laughs> at the beginning um, and at, were at least doing a job than Sassoon sitting there criticising higher command and moaning as you rightly point out when he's a psycho yeah and also kind of our misrepresentation of it because um, the Canadian fellow, McRae, his poem in Flanders Fields, that's often billed as some wistful thing. It's not. It's talking about the worst thing to do would be give up on this war. You think about what the last part of that poem is. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep. It's not, oh, this is a terrible war. Let's let's pack it in. It's the opposite of that. It's carry on. Smash your enemies. All right. So I actually like McRae a bit more. I don't like how it's because he's honest. Yeah. Even if we find it nonsensical now, I just, do you know what? For me, it's like it epitomizes the all this historical nonsense at the moment, where we just view everything from a completely warped, woke twenty first century lens, um, as if that's how they thought as well, and it's not. Yeah. So you know how how did they think at the time of the war? Were they you know the you you see all the things of like them lining up it's going to be all over by christmas we're going off for an adventure you know what what was the mindset of uh, of the common tommy the guy that would have ended up this in the is, trenches do you know what peter hart sums it up best doesn't he Lockie? when he says things like your average tommy isn't sitting there wistfully thinking about take up arms and fight the foe and all of that bollocks he's thinking oh i could really do with a nice big ship with some decent toilet paper for once I mean, let's just... we romanticise the living daylights out of this experience. Yeah. And yeah. actually, I mean, the, one of the best accounts I've ever seen of the war is a South African serving with the Coldstream Guards. And they're like, uh, so what did you do in the trenches all day? What? When I sat there for 23 and a half hours a day with nothing to do, I was a 19-year-old boy and the only thing I had to play with was my cock. I wanked myself silly in the trenches. We all did. I didn't see that coming. Good, <laughs> good lord. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But it's brilliant. when you <laughs> but, think about but, it, yeah. it's sitting in a hole with nothing to amuse themselves apart from their own genitalia. Of course, you're men. 
teenage yeah. man at that. Exactly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's what of course they're going to. This is all tough to deny. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to die a virgin. It's probably quite a big one going through the heads of these teenage boys. Not, oh, how can I publish some nice war poetry that condemns society's sending me to this place? No. Yeah, so the war poetry is the you know, the guys that aren't going to get laid. Yeah, they yeah, basically. I bet they did by each other. No, there's a bit of prevalence Careful. there, isn't there? Yeah, which, which is all fair and well. There was a hell of a lot of that going on in the trenches as well. Well, VD rates. Do you, we need to have a discussion on VD rates? Yes, we do. Lost man hours owing to uh, STDs in the First World War was nearly. Yeah. The subject oh, wow. of my masters, and then I thought, do you know what? I can't spend two years obsessing over <laughs> penile discharge. I'm I'm going to do self-inflicted wounds instead. But, yeah, and writing twelve thousand words on that is oh no, thirty thousand for a month. Thirty thousand words, yeah. yeah. So I just yeah, I I think someone needs to do a proper PhD in sex in the First World War. I think, but yeah, uh, somewhere somebody's going to do that, and somewhere somebody will fund it. Yeah. So just to kind of set the scene of the Great War for particularly just for the non-modern historians in in our audience and myself included, in the space of about five minutes, can you give us a kind of layman's guide to how we go from an angry Serb shooting a posh Austrian to Britain, France and Germany facing each other across Belgium? We didn't because you've missed out 3000 steps before that about 200 blokes in the middle interfering. And the fact is that by the time the first shot was fired on like the 27th, 28th of July across the Danube, no one gave a shit about Franz Ferdinand. The irony is he's the one person that might have stopped it. But he's the one person who's for the last 10 years or whatever before that gone, oi, no, at bloody Conrad and his chums. Um, every time they've tried to take Austria to war, which is the irony between it. I mean... Uh, yeah, it was going to break out no matter what happened. The climate was there politically. Everyone knew there was going to be a war. And this just happened to be the straw that broke the camel's back. That's essentially what happened. So, yeah, they shot him. And Austria didn't give a crap that they shot him. But they were like, oh, well, this is an excuse to sort Serbia out because we don't really like Serbia. They're uppity. Uh, they're independent now. There's loads of Serbs who are quite mouthy living in our own empire. And we can lay down a marker here and sort them out. Um, so they sent this ridiculous ultimatum to Serbia. Mm. Um, they've already forgotten uh, Franz Ferdinand. Even the emperor, his uncle, looks bored at his funeral. No one cares that they died. No one respects their dead bodies. No one respects their funeral service. In fact, there's a courtier that hates them so much that he literally makes tries to make sure that there's something else for everybody to do that day so they don't have to go to the funeral. No one cares. This ultimatum goes to Serbia and it basically, what was it? Uh, I think, is it Churchill or Asquith that says it It will basically reduces Serbia to the level of like a, a county council or whatever. It, it was a shocking. I think grey, but yeah, someone yeah, like that. One sovereign nation to send to another saying, we demand to send blokes into your country with complete jurisdiction to start dishing out justice. And Serbia actually, with the exception of one clause, go all right, just give it to them, give them what they want. Serbia and Austria aren't interested because two weeks before that ultimatum, Alexander Hoyas has already caught a train to Berlin and convinced Germany to enter this madness with them. Um, 
And so then Germany follow Austria and then Russia. This, uh, this is brilliant as well. Russia, defender of the Slavs. I've just finished translating a brilliant treatise out of French of a Polish Duma representative in, in mm. Russian Poland who basically says, defender of Slavs, let me give you a list of all the obscene things they do to Polish Slavs within their own empire. So Russia are full of it as well when they decide they're going to go and defend Serbia, but they're not going to let Germany pick a fight without getting involved. And then France are buggered because France are on the other side and they're allied with Russia. Um, and then besides, Germany decide they're going to take out France anyway and but in doing so, trample all through Belgium and Luxembourg. Britain's kind of dithering on the outside going, well, we don't really legally, if you look at the document, we don't have to do anything for Belgium. Uh, but then they're rubbing our hands with glee and going, yeah, but if there's a war and we win, we'll get stuff at the end of it. Yeah. And there you have it, a European and instant worldwide war because they've all got empires. And, and I like, there's a brilliant bit where they're all like, no, 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 right? We're just agreeing not to touch each other's colonies. Over the better half an hour, Someone's marched into a German colony in Africa uh, and people at the first British shots of the First World War are fired in Africa. That's how much they listen to that plan. Uh, so that, <laughs> so do you see how I've not mentioned Franz Ferdinand or the idiot that shot him at all for five minutes yeah. now? Because they're not even relevant. And that little tubercular weakling that fired the shot, who just happened to be standing in the right place at the right, right time after they completely buggered up their own attempts to kill the guy. Um, really has got it they're just they're they're a catalyst and they're the one that we remember because they're the catalyst that that sent the world to war but Lockie, it had nothing to do with them at all did it absolutely not you know what's dominating the headlines in england at uh, this time uh ireland ireland is so you've got yes. trouble trouble with the irish and and the business over home rule you've got two hundred thousand armed men in ireland ready to go to war over that that's with loves the first world war up. this saves his <laughs> career because he's backed himself into a ridiculous irish corner um over tyrone and whatever other county it was where he's literally gonna end up losing his job because he's messed it up so badly and then war comes along and everyone forgets what a dick he's been if i can just uh, kind of duck in it because this is actually a thing i've um some subjects i've been researching as well but yeah yeah i'm actually with you there for, for asquith this is probably the greatest thing that happened because it manages to take ireland kind of off the table while there's something else going on also gets the suffragettes to shut up Yep. And let's it's not win win. The French aren't even bothered. The French are all obsessing over this nutty woman. Um who <laughs> was was she the wife? The wife of um or was it uh, was it the lover or whatever? It could only happen in France, but some woman was a massive an affair scandal, isn't there? Yeah. And, and... and shoots a guy. She asked for a meeting with uh, it's uh, it's Madame Caillou, isn't it? Or Caillou. That's it. Um yeah. and the guy she kills, she walks into his office and goes, I need a meeting with him, and they're like can you wait half an hour? And she's like, yes, okay. So she waits for half an hour and then she goes into his office and pulls out like the smallest, weediest gun you can think of and shoots the guy um, and then gets off. But the trial is happening that summer. So the French don't care either. No. And actually kind of, it, it, it starts slowly after the assassination because the Austrians are just getting the harvest in. They know exactly what they're going to do anyway. Yeah. Not, not... They need to buy two weeks for the French state visit to Russia to finish, because the worst thing that could happen is they try and kick all this off whilst the president of France is sitting around a dinner table with Tsar Nicholas II. So they go, hmm, like that, and twiddle their thumbs until he buggers off home again and literally wait till he's in the middle of the sea to do it. 
Well, that's got me royally told because uh, somebody once asked me once, like, can you, can you name one his, one historical person that changed the world? And I went, Gavrilo Princip, which wasn't the answer they were expecting. And now I find out that's completely wrong. Yeah. yeah I mean, really. he's just a tool. He's not quite a, as much of a tool as Kabrinovich, one of the other assassins, um, who literally, <laughs> I love the way that he's trying to chug on a cyanide pill, but it doesn't work. Um, so he tries to lob himself in the river, but people just get in there and start kicking lumps out of him and drag him off and stuff. And so he's going like, I die for my cause. And they're like, ah, shut up. And they're stamping on him, basically. So, but And then he, get, he gets dragged past Princip, who thinks I should probably shoot him. So he shuts up, but doesn't do that right either. They are literally, it's like, Laurel and Hardy do assassination. Yeah, this is an assassination that could only have been put together by a government. It's that incompetent. Yeah, and if I was if I was the one that ended up dead because of such a shit assassination attempt, I'd come back and haunt everybody. I'd be pissed <laughs> off. Because how you don't survive this nonsense? And it's the fact that literally, the, the, it's Pretoriak, isn't it, Lockie, the, the governor of Bosnia. He could not have tried harder to get the guy assassinated. He spends no time on security. Uh, he won't, There's a whole army just outside Sarajevo doing manoeuvres. Does he call one man in uniform into the city to protect the heir to the throne? Does he bollocks? No, he's horrible. He does not care. You've got Franz Ferdinand going, I <coughs> don't feel well, perhaps I shouldn't do this visit. And everyone's going, shut up and do as you're told. I just literally... The amount of nonsense that had to happen for that assassination to be successful is ridiculous. <laughs> the, the amount of reverence they attach to the car in the military museum in Vienna uh, is quite funny. They've got this really naff-sounding alarm uh, that goes off, which I set off when I visited because there's a bullet hole in the side of the car, and I went, Ooh. "Oh, you've got to, poke, to touch it, right?" Poke my finger in the bullet hole. Uh, yeah, and a little, a little Austrian man comes running over when the alarm goes off and says, "Oi, don't do that." <laughs> And then sees your seven foot tall and goes, unless you want to, in which case it's fine. (laughs) Right, I know we're going to get hate mail for this one, as we do with all of our episodes recently, but I'm just going to come out with it. How much is Blackadder responsible for this? Because as soon as you said, how did the First World War start? In my head, I started quoting that one episode of Blackadder. So how much is that to blame? Archie Duke. Archie Duke. Yes, uh, yep. Lucky you can take this one away. It, just, it yeah. epit- oh. Again, it epitomises something else, doesn't it? And it's not all Blackadder's fault, but Blackadder was jumping a bandwagon. Yeah, yeah it was. So yeah. the, the Blackadder Goes Forth came out in 1989, and that really is the kind of pinnacle of the gloomy kind of, oh, we were so mm. crap uh, in the First World War period. And, and kind of funnily enough, the books that come along quite soon after that are like, oh, hang on a minute, maybe actually we, we should look at it a little bit differently, seeing as we did win and everything. Well, maybe we didn't do everything mm-hmm. wrong all the time. But, I mean, it, it, Ben Elton's the writer, and if you read his other uh, bit of First World War work, that sucks as well. The thing with Blackadder that I don't get is nobody looks at the second and third seasons, do they, and say, oh, wow, this is a really gritty and realistic portrayal (laughs) of the Elizabethan court. Or, yeah, Yeah. this nails the Regency period down to a T. Yeah. Yeah. Prince Prince George was exactly like this. Exactly. And, yeah, I've got, you know, a a guy that I really like and respect at my rugby club comes up to me and says, oh, so, Black Adder, it really was like that, wasn't it? No! Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Definitely I'm surprised not. you're not still at that conversation. <laughs> <Andy>. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's what it. I mean, here's the other kicker, though. I do like it. I think it's funny, but it's a sitcom. Yeah. It's it's not a documentary. Okay, it's yes. it's a sitcom set in a place, and that's all it is. Okay, it's silly, and it makes us chuckle. Okay, I mean the portrayal of General Melchior. None of it makes sense if you actually know anything about kind of army structure and what battalions actually did when they came into the line and how a kind of company works and how a battalion, how a brigade, how a division works. You do not just you do not have this scenario where you're just sat in a generic dugout for the next opportunity to to chuck yourself over to 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 death, uh, essentially. Command doesn't doesn't kind of have that kind of function. If you see what I mean. General Melchit, I'm not quite sure what level of command he's supposed to have. Uh, I mean, he seems to me like a divisional commander because I, he's, judging by how far back he's about, or even corps command, you might think. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd have thought that, but you don't quite get it. He's, he's got to have some yeah. um He one fucking staff member for a start. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yes. Captain Darling who flounces around and, and, and dodges... That Whatever might be his private yeah. secretary, but where are the other ten guys? The artillery general, the engineer, the, <laughs> the yeah, no. general. Where, where's everybody else? I think I think the single biggest thing is that it it simplifies this war to uh, a level that just it just wasn't at. And I think you know the kind of overarching question that we had for this, uh, you know, what what sets us off? Oh, was the the lions led by donkeys? If I could add a, another kind of element to this, is people think they understand the First World War? They think it's simple, all right? These mm. cascade of alliances happened. Everyone got stuck into each other because they couldn't be bothered to do anything else, and, and then they just shut. <laughs> and they just chucked men at the situation for four and a half years until Germany mysteriously surrendered or something like that. And yeah. and, and and kind of and it's and it personified in a in a cracking sitcom in which we get um rats run over by vans and then served as as dinners to general staff. And we have a captain, no, a commander Flashheart uh, charging around at the head of the 20 minuters. We apparently, uh, well, we apparently have an RFC training school within a core command structure as well on the Western Front, which is bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Just for a start. No, the pilots didn't all go round to the general's chateau to train uh, and train like yeah. for half an hour and then get in an aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the hospital episode I, I found especially funny, uh, actually. But um, yeah, it, no. It, one I love is the one with the where the George dresses in drag um, and does the they do the uh, show because yes. they actually did have people dressed clothes like that. So yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Um, one thing I've noticed in uh, in watching that, and it's it's a little detail that I hope I'm interpreting correctly. Otherwise, you know, I'm totally cutting this bit out. Uh, if you actually look at Captain Darling, you know, for all his fear and his cowardice, he, am I seeing this correctly? Because as far as I can see, he's wearing a military cross. I've never looked at his medal ribbons. No, I've never... have, have a look I mean, at that. To be because... honest, though, the Prince of Wales got given a military cross. <laughs> yeah, okay. As well, even he he was embarrassed by it because he was like, "I have not." I almost accidentally got shelled when I was sitting in my car, and we killed a French bloke. Or a French bloke lost his leg because we ran him over. I mean, if, unless that's why they gave him the military cross, because they managed to sever the limb of a French farmer whilst running around in a Rolls Royce Silver Ghost or whatever it was. 
I'm just looking at that. Though. For me, it, it it changed the view of Captain Darling. But I'm, yeah, moving on to the side. Yeah, pretty sure that's a that's a purple and white ribbon that he's got there. Yeah, and that's that. You know, not cowardice. Potentially PTSD. Never mentioned. Do you yeah. know how they chose a purple and white ribbon? Though it was brilliant. So there was this epic meeting with, uh, and Kitchener was getting really, really pissed off because people just kept faffing with the design of this medal and what it was going to look like. And you've got representing the king, you've got Fritz Ponsonby, who's an army officer and he's uh, in, basically in charge of the king's finances. And they send Fritz along because Fritz loves a good row. And they're sitting there and Fritz is like, all right, well, we've got all these designs, but this one, this one overachieving wanker turns up with a gilded design for a medal, which is all coloured in and everything. And Ponsonby says, I knew as soon as I saw it that Kitchener had picked that one because he's like a fucking magpie. And he did. That's the design he picked. But then they started like a two-hour debate about what colour to have the ribbons. And Fritz had taken with him a Bible like this of medal ribbons for different countries. And every suggestion Kitchener came up with, he'd be like, oh, red and blue? No, I think you'll find that's the blah, blah, blah cross from Thailand. Oh, no, the black and white. Well, that's the Paul and Marie, and we don't really want that. So after three hours of running around in circles, he goes... What about this lovely little purple and white number that my wife put together last night and Kitchener goes, fine, we'll have that one. <laughs> to be over. So he basically, that medal ribbon is totally manipulated out of Kitchener uh, by one of the King's private secretaries because he wants his wife's design. Awesome. Awesome. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we've kind of touched on this before in one of the earlier questions, but it's pretty ludicrous to think we just spent four years throwing men into enemy machine guns and just waiting for something to change. How did tactics actually develop uh, during the time of the Great War? Loads yeah. is the honest answer, because I mean, there's, yes. there's elements of truth to the kind of popular idea on um, how kind of tactics went, because you know, you, you had an officer class who would carry a stick, you know, er, early on in the war in particular, um, and they would lead out a platoon that went forward. In 1914, everyone's really well trained, uh, really. This is the original BEF goes out, and you've got uh, a lot of professional soldiers out there, and it's fine. In 1915, you've got the, the, the kind of analogy that I use with school kids when I'm trying to explain this is essentially you've got like a flyweight boxer who pound for pound could potentially be the best in the world. But if you stick him in the ring with a heavyweight, he's going to get crushed. OK, and that's kind of what the British Army was like at the start of the war. It needs to get bigger. So what happens is this flyweight boxer eats pies 
for some months until it, it reaches the sort of weight needed uh, to, to get in the ring. Does that make him a heavyweight boxer? Absolutely not. And, and the performance isn't great. So you do have some officers still with sticks trying to lead guys forward and it doesn't work all that well. Okay. Now the big kind of catalyst for change is the Battle of the Soul. Already mm -hmm. a lot has been learned by this stage. You've got officers who don't carry sticks because you, they realize, funnily enough, if you carry a stick, you look pretty obvious as an officer and you're most likely to yeah. get shot first. So the, the yeah. officers by this stage know, yeah. know to carry rifles and, and, and dress a bit like the men. Okay. But yeah, the Battle of the Somme, especially the opening day, doesn't go well enough, certainly. Uh, you have a huge number of losses and it's it's unrepeatable. You can't lose 57,000 men as casualties in a day and do that habitually. Okay, so things start changing immediately. Rather than big, ponderous shelling barrages where you shoot at the Germans for a week and try and bust everything up. Here's the thing. The Germans would have had to have been born yesterday not to know that an attack was coming. Um, I've seen yeah. some uh, work done that says, oh, there's there's intelligence failures and the Germans intercepted some messages that, that gave them a tip off that the attack was coming. No, they saw 420,000 men move into the line in front of them. That's like the population of modern Cardiff, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and then we moved you know, train loads of you know, guns and ammunition uh, into the area. It's, it, you know, if they couldn't have noticed this, then there would have a problem. Then we shot at them for a week. <laughs> That, right. that does give the game away somewhat, doesn't yeah. it? And then just and then just before, as it were, ten minutes before, in one case, we exploded these flipping great mines underneath sections of their line as well. All right, so the Germans have just yeah. been waiting for the exact signal of when exactly is this big attack going to come? Boom, 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 boom. Oh, how about now? Yeah, all right. So, yeah. So, so yeah. things had to become a bit more sophisticated than that, and they did. All right. So two weeks later, um, they, they've done away with the week-long bombardment altogether. They concentrate on a smaller front uh, and they go for a five-minute hurricane barrage and then an immediate assault with the infantry uh, after that. And that worked quite a lot better. Trouble is, the Germans learn as well. So they start concentrating their artillery. Uh, and so the next couple of months really is just banging away, quite small frontage. And it's attack, counterattack, 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 counterattack. You know, the, the old phrase is there's two things in life you can be sure of, death and taxes. There's actually a third thing, which is German counterattack. They will come for you mm -hmm. at some point. So these counterattacks and counterattacks develop through uh, July, August and into September on the Somme, but all the time people are thinking of solutions to the problems. And, and one big problem is barbed wire. What can you do with, with barbed wire? Well, tanks become a solution. They get introduced in mid-September on the Somme with, with the battle two and a half months old. We get these big bulletproof-ish metal boxes. They're not foolproof by that time, but they're, they're a sign of things to come, certainly. Yeah. And so more and more of these come into the battlefield. By the early part of next year, we've moved on from a platoon being 50 riflemen led by an officer who says, come on, fellas, follow me, to four sections, each with their own weapon groups. Uh, you've got a light machine gun section, a rifle grenade section, a bayonet section and a bomb section. And, and when it meets a German machine gun, it doesn't say, right, come on, let's charge it. It's right. Lewis Gunner and rifle grenadiers put some fire on it, shut it up, uh, bayonet and bombers off you go and, and kill or capture the crew. All right, and that starts to become something like modern soldiering. 
by the end of 1917, yeah. artillery progress has caught up as well. So they can fire pre um, fire bombardments without pre-registering. And pre-registering was always the thing that gave the game away as well, uh, because you'd need to kind of have a, a few shots to, to range your guns up and, and stuff. And, you know, the German sees a, a shell drop to his left and another shell drop to his right and then one behind him and then one in front of him and thinks, I know what's going on here. I'm going to move. All right. Or I'm going to get my reserves in, in, in place. By the end of 1917, they don't get the warnings anymore. Uh, accurate bombardments get fired uh, mm. and also you don't need to fire big destructive barrages to break up the barbed wire because you've got hundreds of tanks to do it by that stage and so by 19 end of 1917 the battlefield looks so different to even kind of halfway through the previous year never mind what it looked like in 1914 so there's so much that changes by 1918 Holding a single trench line is so dangerous because of the amount of artillery that can get concentrated onto a point without any warning that movement returns to the battlefield again. So that's yeah. when things really start breaking up. And, you know, if, you, if you're kind of looking at things logically at the end of 1918, the Germans were in a position of real strength. And you'd sort of describe the situation. You think, how could the British and the French with the Americans possibly be on the winning side that year? But, but they did. Um, and tactical progress is a, is a real part of that. So with each stage of this, you, you know, you, you you start off by sending some guys over the top in the traditional manner. You see what happens. We go, we can't do that again. Uh, and yeah, is it a case of trial error, mostly error? Was was for both sides. I'll say that much. You know, the the idea that only the Germans had a, had the wit to um, think of things in a modern sort of sense and and distribute lessons learned and stuff like that is nonsense. No, the British were were, were sharing lessons around. Now, whether a divisional commander took that lesson on board, <laughs> that's I another. Think there are uh, some shit generals. There are. Yeah, there are. There, there, are, there are now. <laughs> yeah, there's still some. Yeah, still plenty getting fired towards the end, weren't there? Um, so, yeah, there were some crap ones, but on the whole, as the war went on, so uh, generals got younger, if that makes sense, yeah. but also more experienced because you, you'd have quite an old crop of generals uh, coming in with maybe Boer War experience or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, but by 1918, you've got divisional commanders who have maybe come up through the ranks from maybe kind of captain or, or major at the start of the war, had four hard years of war, seen the progress, seen the development, been with their men for a long time, and and were young enough to yeah. still be kind of creative and sparky when it came to, to tactics as well. So, yeah, so you start off with these old guys that have, yeah, like you say, fought the Boer War or possibly even fought the Zulus. And... You know, yeah. By by the end of the war, you've got you've got people who spent four years fighting that war. That is the war that they know the most about. Yeah, you've got divisional commanders in their thirties and forties, as opposed to in their fifties and sixties. I mean, Smith Dory uh, did fight the Zulus. He did. Yeah, he did. He ran away from the Zulus quite effectively, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talking of lessons learned, then, you know, if you move move to kind of the aftermath of the war. Um, what do you think both sides learnt from that war going forward to their respective futures? I mean, we know we know where that future ends in 20 years' time, and we're kind of coming to that question a little later on. But in the aftermath of World War One, what lessons do you think were learned by each side? Not enough, right? 
Not enough. I think there's, there's certain things with, with regard to how you close a war out, because I think one thing that they didn't quite understand at the end of the First World War is if you break it, you buy it. And they definitely broke Germany by the end of the war, but didn't want to take responsibility for putting down the German Revolution afterwards. So they sort of, oh, go on, you you know, have a go with the Republic, are you? Fine, away you go with that. But it was it was almost doomed to fail from the start. Whereas at the end of the Second War, that didn't take place. You know, Germany was split up and, and very much put under new management at least in those early years. So I think there's there's maybe one lesson in that. But apart from that, the kind of immediate post-war years are bleak. You know, all the promises made to soldiers about a land fit for heroes, um, that sort of stuff. No, you've got terrible unemployment and depressions, and it just doesn't work out for the soldiers. It could be quite a, a disheartening from a philosophical point of view as much as, as anything, but also just a putting food on the table point of view. Too. Well, that's just Britain as well. I mean, we talk about the end of the war in 1918. If you think that everybody went back to holding hands and skipping around wearing daisy chains and stuff, bollocks. Well, burns for years afterwards. To about yeah. 1923, yeah. you've got revolutions, upheaval, localised conflicts going all over the place. Yeah. And that's, and you know, these all stemming from the yeah. end of that conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you go you look at a Greek war memorial and it says 1912 to 1921 or 1923 on it. Some examples of that instability in various places. I mean, you've got, you know, the the end of the Ottoman Empire comes around that time, and there's clearly a power vacuum there. And no, of course, there's a 1919 revolution of uh, of Russia. What else is going on? Well, the Russian Civil War goes into the twenties, and that's horrific. Um, that's Russians fighting Russians. That's a terrible one. You've got Greek and Greece and Turkey going at each other as, as they ever have done. Um, yeah. You've got Ireland. You've got well, name me some others, Lockie. Berlin. You, you've got you've got old British tanks with crosses painted on the side, rumbling around in central Berlin. You've got machine guns mounted on the backs of cars, and you've got various Freikorps units. You've got naval Freikorps units fighting army Freikorps uh, units um, as as revolution grips in in Berlin. So the idea that it, the fighting stops for Germany, no, it doesn't. It comes right home, and even after the revolutions into some sort of order you've got putsch after putsch and financial disaster and extreme politics coming along and political murder very much the norm there so mm. all all with every i mean they mobilized a huge proportion of their male population much more than britain did and i've, I've heard the years following the great war described as the the golden age of uh, domestic violence Okay, and that's that's as simple mm. a thing as you know. You, everyone's come home with a massive case of PTSD and desensitization to violence, and you're sat at home, and your wife gives you grief because you haven't done the washing up or something like that, and smack because you don't appreciate what what violence is to the same extent. Well, Germany had it much much worse than Britain. Actually, kind of Britain and Germany do have some things in common, and the fighting in Ireland, I kind of liken the the, the black and tans. Uh, in Ireland to the Freikorps units in Germany, a lot of ex-soldiers who don't know how to act around civilians uh, anymore. I, I suppose that one of the things that gets often overlooked, and, and we've seen this with various kind of like weapon displays and things like that, is do you, you have this thought of uh, of the First World War being going to go over the trench and it's all it's all guns and rifles but that's when you get into a trench on the other side 
the weaponry you're using is medieval. I mean, it is maces. It is clubs with nails through them. It is, you know, that's got to leave a mark on a man. You ever seen a French bayonet? There's a reason that the Germans are running away from them in 1914. Like a I've not seen one. Knitting needle, yeah, essentially, yeah. like twice three times the thickness, but a giant needle and like a they square are point, isn't it? They're yeah, horrible, yeah. Trained to stab the living daylights out of you. I mean, and it's like Nikolai Eberholz has got this account by a Austrian or Russian in the Carpathians, I think it is, where literally the guy's talking about shoving a bayonet in someone's eye and the grinding noise it makes on the socket and stuff. <sighs> so yeah, it medieval. Yeah, and that's they that's got you take that home with you and you know, your wife, your kids, your family are gonna be on the receiving end of that. That's pretty much unavoidable. Yeah. Whoa. Well that got dark. <laughs> yeah, didn't it? Yeah, bloody bloody um, hell. Okay, Kyle, carrying on the lesson theme then. Yeah, so um, um dive in. So to carry on this theme, um how much of the aftermath of the First World War is carries over and is to blame for the second. Well, you kind of got this fashion now of saying that the war never ended. And that actually... Yeah, it's all one war. Goes all the way through. <laughs> yeah, it's all one war that goes all the way through. Uh, World War Two yeah. really is just the sequel, people. It doesn't happen without World War One. It doesn't happen in mm. a vacuum. Yeah. It happens because of World War One. I. I was going to say, yeah. In terms of creating the conditions where a second World War could take place, yeah, a, a, the First World yeah. War is, is is special in a number of ways. I mean, the, the amount of, never mind lives lost, which is a, a, a source of bitterness and resentment for, 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 for nations all through Europe and the world. The amount of cash burned, war is flipping expensive. Um, and, and the First World War uh, cost a phenomenal amount. Um, Five million generally... a day by 1917 for Britain. <laughs> Yeah, and a million was more then than it is now. Mm. Um, yeah, but but Germany managed to spend a little bit more than Britain. Yeah, it was the only country that did, and then got the bill for everything afterwards, and so could never economically recover. And and extreme politics can can breed in that sort of situation where you've got resentment at a at a defeat that you don't see as a defeat necessarily. Yeah, yeah and there's. You, it's always painted with the Treaty of Versailles. That's not just a defeat of Germany, but it's an absolute hammer home. With... Could have been worse. But Lloyd George wanted the Kaiser dragged through the streets of London. Now, actually, really? he wanted him sailed up the River Thames, Henry VIII style, uh, and then dragged through the streets of London and hung as a war criminal. And it's the king that basically says to him, oh, for my dead and lifeless body, you loon. And it's actually Churchill at the end of all people that says, like, this needs to let everybody back away and calm down a bit because this is not going to help. And yeah. God bless the Netherlands for telling everybody to piss off when they were demanding that he be extradited. Oh my God. And you've just got to look at any situation where Churchill is your it's staying your voice hand. of reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we all need to calm down, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah, deep breaths, everyone. Just back away and we'll... <laughs> Good grief! It wasn't a huge. It, it wasn't a huge surprise that the Versailles terms were going to be harsh. I mean, just before the armistice was signed, the kind of terms of the armistice come through, and a hint of what's to follow uh, is given to the German delegation. 
uh, at Compiègne where they where they sign this thing. And and the, the fellow they sent off to sign it is a guy called Matthias Erzberger, um, who was a, a Catholic centre politician who'd led the calls for peace actually in Germany the the previous year. And that's that's why they sent him as much as anything because they knew he was serious. But he gets in touch with the kind of main men in Berlin, and really really it's Friedrich Ebert um, by this stage who goes on to be Germany's first president. He'd been calling for peace without annexations uh, as well. He, he, he gets to hear the terms of the armistice and what's to follow, immediately goes to the army commanders and says, can you keep fighting? <laughs> because this is so harsh. I want us to fight for a few more weeks and maybe the Allies will come back with something a little less yeah. draconian. Wow. And the army commanders just say, no, with, with, no, with, with Austria folding and we're about to have an Italian Franco-Anglo army march up through Bavaria and, uh, and a Franco-Serbian Greek uh, army is about to march in through Dresden. <laughs> so, so no. And we've got sailors, we've got German sailors who have attacked and occupied Kiel and Hamburg and Bremen. No, we cannot fight everyone. So it cannot yeah, be done. That was, that was it. Thank you. Okay, well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna light the Alex ch- touch paper now. <laughs> so, uh, ever since the end of the Great War, then in one form or another, we've commemorated Remembrance Sunday, uh, and this goes like forward through time. I noticed one thing that you put out on social media earlier uh, earlier on, which is like late last year around the time, and I wanted to ask you this question. Uh, and do please don't catch fire. <laughs> Has the remembrance industry gone too far? Yes. Just yes, the fact you're calling it in a remembrance industry. Industry is completely with the burger van on Horse Guards Parade last year. Because, come on, people. For a start, no, we haven't all hung our heads in misery. Um, for the first God knows how many years, it was an epic excuse for ex-servicemen to meet up with each other, having survived the thing, and get totally shit-faced. It was party time. Those that survived got together, got utterly, utterly wankered in memory of all their friends and Mm. celebrated the armistice. Then they all started dying off and people were like, well, I didn't earn the right to do that. So perhaps I need to do it a little differently. So perhaps we need Mm. to be a bit more solemn. And then it turned into this virtue signalling wank fest, basically, whereby you can buy yourself a lest we forget thong online mm. a thong what yeah no yeah whoever needs poppy themed underwear yeah we don't i've no problem with the british legion expanding their shop and selling something other than a poppy i thought the the gin was too far um, or the rum yeah. wasn't it? it was rum it was mm. pulled yeah. in on the rum um and they got that wrong and whoever Whoever um, is in charge of their PR and stuff needed taken out the back and given a good kick in. Uh, but that is their symbol. Um, and if you can raise money for guys, they supported my granddad when he put his back out in the aftermath of yeah. being in the army. Um, and they put clothes on my mum's back. I've got no problem with them. But it just it is an industry now where everyone has commandeered the poppy and wants to make money out of it every November. And that makes me sad and yeah. angry. It's cropping up all over the place as well, because it's not just the British Legion that's turning out now. I mean, I know the guys in my my local British Legion, you know, whenever they're 
out collecting for the poppy appeal they're, they're always having that conversation with people of like no that isn't actually yeah. you know british legion merchandise that's coming from someone no i don't care if they give five percent of their funds to this it's it's not part of us and, right. and it's getting it everywhere doesn't collect money in november that's their time like literally yeah. that is, that is their time they're once a year and we're not bandwagoning that to try and get donations out of people that's that's their gig um and we didn't do it in our first year and we won't do it in our second yeah. year um because stealing someone else's emblem to make money and they actually they own the copyright on that as well so you were in breach of that when you slap a poppy on i don't know a, a dildo or whatever the fuck knows else you're going to try and sell um to try and raise yourself some cash because these aren't charities doing it either they're not yeah it, it's just like oh let's yeah, all make it's... money out of remembrance um, yeah. and it's infuriating yeah. but sanctimony attached to some people's i mean i love it and i know lucky feels this too I love people telling me how to do remembrance every November because you're like, dude, every day of my life is remembrance. I literally study this 365 days a year and along you wade on November the 11th and tell me how to do my thing. Do one. Seriously. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. And, it is, and it is every day. But but also, you know, the, the same people will chip in saying, oh, you take money from people to, to take them around the battlefields on tours or something like that. You're you're no better than any of these other guys. Well, no, hang on a minute. I actually do the research. You know, I actually tell the stories of these, these guys. And I... If they went away to the battlefield, wouldn't know what they were looking at. They want to know what they're looking at. They want mm. someone to tell them and put it into context. Exactly. And what does lest we forget mean if it doesn't mean remember it and, and learn about it and teach others about it? And that's it. Mm. Yeah, yeah don't just buy something with it on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who'd have thought, Lockie? We didn't need to bother going to university and being poor. We could have had real jobs um, and made money and just bought a thong. That would have sorted it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure a thong's really for you, Lockie. Oh, don't knock it till you tried it. Okay, well, you yeah, run the London Marathon in that next year, then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, thank you very much. I think yes. that's, I think you'll all agree that's all good and told about ourselves. Yeah. And more importantly, good and much. told about the Great War. Thank you very, very much. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know uh, more about the work being done, then you can check out the group's website at www.greatwar.com. And you can sign up to their range of talks, special events, tours. You can follow them on Twitter at Great War Group, and we'll put links to those in the show notes. You can also follow Alex at Churchill underscore Alex and Andy at Big Andy Lock if you need more history and more rage in your life. Once again, guys, thank you for what was truly an epic rage. Yes, thank you very much. That was brilliant. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Babble. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage because we want to know what really gets your goat. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot to us when you do that. From all of us here at History Rage, thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.